turning there, getting there in your Bibles. Last week we started in Luke chapter 1, and we started with this uh, story, this event that took place. Uh, we were introduced to a elderly couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth, and these were some good people. And they were uh, righteous before God. They followed his decrees, his commandments, his statutes. They lived the kind of life that they were supposed to. The only catch was is they were barren. She was not able to have a child. And uh, at this time, you know, to have a child would be seen as a blessing from God. And so the opposite would be this would be seen as a curse. But he is, uh, Zechariah is uh, serving in the temple, bringing the incense. The one time in his life he would be able to do this. And he meets the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel tells him, you are going to be, or you are going to have a son. I've heard your prayers. You are going to have a son. But this son isn't going to just be any ordinary child. No, this son would make way for the Messiah, for the Savior to come. And Zechariah kind of handles this how I think many of us would probably handle news like this. They're elderly, their uh, time in life where one would expect to have offspring has passed. And so now he asks the question, how shall I know this? I'm an old man. How is this possible? And you know, in a way, he's asking for a sign, and so the sign he gets is also punishment. Because you didn't believe what I said, you are not going to be able to hear or speak until this child comes. And we, we get that way, I think, sometimes. We, we struggle with how is this possible, even though we know that God is in the business of doing the impossible. We question how is this possible, but... Everything comes just as had been told to Zechariah. Elizabeth conceives, and she keeps to herself for five months, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. And that leads us to where we are this morning in verse 26. And you see, this had been prophesied all the way since the beginning. When sin entered into the world, it was said that someone was coming. A Messiah was coming. And we see this story, you know, Cody was talking about this saga, this story that has been weaved and it is moving. And, and it was expected that a Messiah would come. But yet when we read verses 26 through 38, it feels like a lot of unexpectations. Uh, uh, from the place where Gabriel goes to the girl that he appears before and everything that is told to her, it all just feels kind of unexpected. But it's important. To say that this is important, we cannot overstate how important this is, this birth that is being foretold in this passage. It's huge. Arrhenius once said, those who assert that he was a mere man begotten by Joseph, being ignorant of him who was from the virgin is Emmanuel, are deprived of his gift, which is eternal life. Not receiving the incorruptible word, they remain in mortal flesh and are debtors to death, not obtaining the antidote of life. 
I love how God questions, describes the virgin birth, and it says, those today who would deny the virgin birth contradict the clear teaching of Scripture, call into question other miracles recorded in the Bible, and open the door to a denial of Christ's full deity or his full humanity. This is important. Because if you can't believe in the virgin birth, it's going to be hard to believe in anything else, any other miracles, especially a resurrection. But before we get there, we start with an announcement. We start with an announcement full of surprises and unexpected events. And I think as we go through this, there's a lot of important stuff. It's a meaty text with a lot of things that we can sink our teeth into. So we're just going to jump right into it in verse 26. Verse 26 and 27. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And so we see right here, he goes, the angel Gabriel goes in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, goes to Nazareth. And, you know, here's the thing about Nazareth, depending on who you read or who you talk to, Nazareth was really seen as either a city that really had no, no importance whatsoever. There was nothing important about it. There was nothing that we needed to know about Nazareth, but Archaeological finds have shown that it's possible that Nazareth would have, hold, or would have held the Roman garrison for the northern areas of Galilee. And because of this, it could have been a city where lots of people were coming in and out. What's interesting, Nazareth is never once mentioned in the Old Testament. You can look for Nazareth in the Old Testament. You're not going to find it. Some believe maybe it was because it was founded much later uh, in between the Old Testament and the New. Some believe, again, it was just so insignificant nobody talked about it. One thing we do know, whatever one is the case, we know the Jews were not a big fan of Nazareth, and they largely despised it. We see this in John chapter 1, 45 through 46, when Philip finds Nathanael. It says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Can anything good possibly come from Nazareth? This is kind of unexpected. But he comes, and he comes to a virgin, a virgin. And this is important because this was prophesied that it would be a virgin who would be with child, Isaiah 7:14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so this had been prophesied. And now we see, we're seeing glimpses of these prophecies going to be fulfilled and this time to a virgin, and this virgin was betrothed, betrothed. In Jewish culture, you may be wondering, what does that mean to be betrothed? In Jewish culture, a man and a woman were pledged to be married for a period of time before the consummation of their marriage. This was something stronger than what we would consider as an engagement. They were seen as husband and wife, and this was to only be broken by death or divorce. And so what would this look like? What would this process look like? Um, in his commentary on the life of Christ, Mark Moore describes it like this. He says, shortly after a girl hit her teens, she would be betrothed. 
the parents of the prospective couple would make the arrangements and, in fact, choose the partner. Although this does not meet our cultural mores, it remained there at that time, it was an effective means of marriage. Once a young man saved enough money, he would choose a mediator. The mediator would go with the young man's parents to the house of the prospective bride. His parents would meet them and offer a drink. The party would refuse the drink until the price of the dowry had been set and consent of the bride given. Her parents would then choose a mediator for their side, and the negotiations would begin. When the matter was settled, refreshments were brought out, and everyone celebrated the agreement. Betrothal would probably last no longer than a year before the wedding. This contract was legally binding and could only be broken by death or divorce. And in case of the former, the woman was considered a widow. Yet sexual relations were not permitted until after the wedding ceremony, according to Jewish custom. And so it's a lot kind of stronger than what we, as I said, would consider an engagement. So she was betrothed. And she was betrothed to a man named Joseph. And Joseph was from the house, the line of David. Joseph was a carpenter. This is important, we'll see later, because carpenters at this time, they weren't very wealthy. Both of these two were not very wealthy. They were a poor couple. And later on, we would see Jesus take on that same job as his earthly father. We then go into verse 28. And it says, And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And so Gabriel appears before Mary, the girl in our story is Mary, and he says, O favored one, the Lord is with you. The term favored one, it comes from a Greek root word that's closely connected to the word charis, which is the Greek word for grace. And so in other words, she has been greatly graced. She has received grace, graceful favor from God. Fun fact, it's this passage in verse 28 that we get the famous song. It's taken from this verse, um, Ava Maria. You probably have heard it at some point. That's where this comes from. And we see here that this greeting troubles her. She's troubled by this. She's greatly troubled by this. And, you know, I get it. A lot of times when angels would appear, it would be for the purpose of judgment or for destruction. And so this angel appears before her, and she's trying to figure out what this means. She's afraid. She's fearful. She's troubled at this. Some believe that maybe she's saying this because it's a thing of humility. She's trying to figure out why she would be considered favor of anybody else. Why would she be favored? Either way, she's troubled by this, and yet Gabriel tells her, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid because you have found favor with God, and you are going to conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. The name Jesus, it comes from the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Jehovah saves, and that's exactly what he would do. He would save 
people from their sins. We see in Matthew 1, 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. And this birth of this child will fulfill what is said in Isaiah, in Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This child is going to be important. And then Gabriel Gabriel starts going into these kind of descriptions on who this child will be and why this child will be so important. And he starts by saying he will be great. He will be great. His life on earth will have great importance. His mission, his task, his purpose will be great. He will be great. And he will be called Son of the Most High. I really love this phrase here, Son of the Most High. The phrase Most High, it's an exalted title for God. There is no other God. He is Most High. There is no one above Him. There is no one before Him. He is God Most High. That is who He is. And I love the words Son of. Son of. The phrase Son of, this points to His equality with God the Father. And it points to his equality with God the Father. And in Semitic thought, Semitic thought would teach that to say the phrase son of would mean that you were a carbon copy of your father. And so for me to say I am Bobby, son of John, would mean that I have the characteristics, whether good or bad, of my father. The good things I take from him, and probably even though or he would probably tell you, yeah, there's probably some things from my life that you took that I wish you wouldn't have. But we take the characteristics, the qualities of our father. And so for him to say son of the most high would mean that he is a carbon copy of his father. The son of Jesus would possess the qualities of his father, his characteristics, his attributes, his nature, he would have the same qualities of his father. And we get that in Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the son of the carbon copy of the father, the quality, the nature, The things of God that make God God is also present in the Son. This phrase is interesting, Son of the Most High. We actually, outside of this, only see Jesus referred to as the Son of the Most High twice in the Gospels, and both times are by the uh, Gerasene demonic in Mark 5, 7 and Luke 8, 28. This is the only time we see the phrase Son of the Most High, or we see this title used for him. But what I think is pretty amazing about this is Luke 6.35. In Luke 6.35 it says, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. We can be called sons of the Most High. He is the sons of the Mo- or He is the Son of the Most High. We can be called sons of the Most High. And how is this? Well, it's because we are adopted into sonship by the blood of Christ. 
And because of that, we can be children, sons of God. John 1.12, But to all who, did not, or all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Romans 8.14-17, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears in witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 1 John 3, 1 and 2, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. You know, as I was reading that this week, something came to my mind. If, if it means to be son of, and you're a carbon copy of your father... If Jesus, the Son of the Most High, is a carbon copy of his Father, wouldn't this mean, in the fact that we are sons of the Most High, wouldn't this mean that we should look like our Father? I mean, doesn't this mean that if he is our Heavenly Father, we are created in his image, we are his children, we are sons and daughters of the Most High? If that is us, shouldn't we look like him in the way that we act, in the way that we live, in the things that we say, in the things that we do? Shouldn't his characteristics, his quality be shown through us and how we handle our affairs, how we handle the situations of life, how we go to work every day, how we approach our coworkers, how we approach our classmates, how we approach the people we do life with, shouldn't we have the characteristics and quality of our Heavenly Father? Here's the truth. We should look different than the world. We should look nothing like the world. We should look like our Heavenly Father. We should talk like our Heavenly Father. We should sound. We should smell. We should be like our Heavenly Father. We should be copies of Him and how we live and how we handle life, how we handle the things of this world. We should have the characteristics, the quality of our God. Then Gabriel says, He will be given the throne of his father David. And this, again, was prophesied just as well, this, that the Messiah would come from the line of David and that David's reign would continue. In Second Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, though my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. We know that in the immediate, it's being talked about, our, the son would be Solomon, but this is a prophecy of what was to come. And we see it again, Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. 
In Psalm 89, 3 through 4, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Selah. So he will reign on the, the throne of his forefather, David. And this is important because, you know, the kings would come and they would take the throne, but then guess what? They would die. And then the next king would take the throne, and then he would die. And then the next king would come and he would take the throne, and then he would die, but not this one. No, he was going to reign over the house of Jacob. This symbolized all of Israel because Jacob was seen as the father of the 12 patriarchs. And he would be king over the nation of Israel forever. It says that his reign will have no end. His kingdom will have no end. His throne will have no end. He is eternal. Guess what? He is on the throne now and he will be on the throne forever. His reign continues. It does not cease other kings, their, their reign ends when their life ends. This king reigns today, yesterday, today, tomorrow, forever. And so all these important descriptions that Gabriel gives, and I can't imagine what Mary is thinking in this, but then we get her first response in verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? You see, Mary asks a really solid question here. And some want to look at this story and they want to compare it to Zechariah. And it doesn't, we kind of get on to Zechariah because he seemed to ask a question. But Mary asks a question here. What's the difference between the two? Well, the difference between the two is that Zechariah, he just doesn't believe because he's too old. God, I'm too old for this. It's just not possible. The difference being here is Mary is not asking this question in unbelief. She has faith. She's wondering, how is this possible? Because I have never consummated my marriage. I have not been with a man. This is a physical impossibility considering she's not consummated her marriage. And... She's not lacking faith. She's just asking, how is this possible? And you see, this is a very hotly contested thing, this idea of a virgin birth. Those who don't believe, those who are skeptical, they want to point to this as being one of the reasons why they're skeptical. How in the world can a virgin bear a child? In his exposition collection commentary, R.C. Sproul shared this quote. He said, Of all the New Testament miracles, the virgin birth of Jesus creates the most controversy. It is seen to be incredible by, incredible by skeptics. At the turn of this century, some scholars tried to find a way around it. They said the word virgin, if we look back to the Old Testament, could mean simply a young woman. They argued that the Bible never intended to teach a virgin birth in the first place. It is true that the word doesn't have to mean virgin, although that is its principal meaning. But even if the word virgin were not found in the text, how could we miss the concept? When Mary asked, how can I have a baby? I have never been with a man. And you know some people are skeptical and they're going to try to find every way around it and try to find every way to prove that this just wasn't the case and that this just wasn't possible. But we know the truth. We know that God can do what we think is impossible or what we say is impossible. And here it all boils down to this. If God could create life all the way at the very beginning, if God can create man and woman, then he can create a child here. Nothing is impossible with him. 
And then we move into verse 35 through 37. It says, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And so now Gabriel is going to explain how this is all possible. How is this going to happen? Well, first we see that the Holy Spirit will come upon her and the power of God will overshadow her. The Holy Spirit, of course, he's involved here in this. He was there at the beginning in creation. He is an agent of creation. And here he is an agent of creation, creating this child in the womb of Mary. We see this in Hebrews 10.5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And so the Holy Spirit would come and he would create life in Mary and the power of God would be at play too, creating life in her. And this child would be called Holy and he would be called the Son of God. This is... I think profoundly important. He will be called holy, the son of God. Why is this so important? Well, it's because this child would be holy and he would be without sin. And you know as well as I do, as a result of the sinful nature, each and every one of us are conceived and born into sin. We have this sinful nature from the time we are conceived until the time we depart from this earth. We have this sinful nature that is in us. It's a result of the flesh. In Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Psalm 51.5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not saying, you know, my mother in her sin conceived me. I was, she had an affair or something like that. No, what he is saying is, from the time I was conceived, I had sin. I had sinful nature in me. Each and every one of us start with sin in our lives because the sinful nature that has spread to us. But here we have this holy son of God, this holy child. He would be born into this world. Have, he would be fully human, but also fully God. And yet in him, there would be no sin. He knew no sin. First of all, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He knew no sin. He did no sin. First Peter 2.22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He had no sin. First John 3.5, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. He was born holy without sin. And guess what? He was tempted. He faced every single temptation that we face. He was tempted in the desert. He faced temptation, and yet in him there was no sin. He was holy, the son of God, the carbon copy of God, the God who had all these amazing characteristics and qualities. He was this carbon copy. But then when I think of this, that he had no sin, he committed no sin, he knew no sin, I think of Romans five fifteen through 17. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, many more, or much more, have the grace of God. And the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. 
And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned throughout that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. He came to this earth. He lives a life as a man, both man and God, and he becomes the perfect mediator. He becomes this go-between God and man, and his sacrifice reverses the curse of sin in our lives. Such an important child to say the least and then there's this kind of unexpected sign that elizabeth or that mary is given it says that your relative you know she has conceived a son and this is her sixth month and she was called barren and you know i imagine mary knew all about what elizabeth and zachariah had gone through i'm sure she knew enough about them to know that she was barren and and now this surprise hey guess what you're not the only one who's going to be with child elizabeth your relative is also with child now it doesn't tell us here how they are related it's kind of been passed down in some translations and stuff have said that it was possible that they were cousins it doesn't tell us that here and some even say it's possible that because of age Elizabeth could have been a, an aunt or a grandmother to Mary. That's just kind of hearsay. It doesn't tell us. It just says a relative. But then I like what Gabriel says. He says, for nothing will be impossible with God. Here's a sign to you. She was barren. She was too old to produce a child. But guess what? She will be, she is with child. Nothing is impossible with God. You know, we talked about this last week, but I think it bears repeating since it tells us right here, nothing is impossible for God. God majors in the impossible. All the things that we think God cannot do, he can do. He can do whatever he sets his mind to. If he wants to do something, he can do it. Nobody can tell him no. Nobody can stop him. He can do what he wants to do. He can do all things that are possible. And yet... All things that are possible and impossible. He can do whatever he wants, and yet we live our lives believing that he can't, that he won't, that he doesn't. And I get it. I get why we feel that way. I understand why people say that, and I understand why people think that way. And, and I often hear the reason why people think that way is because I've watched someone suffer I've watched loved ones go through pain. I have watched loved ones who are hurting. I have watched loved ones who have seen marriages dissolve. I've seen loved ones who have, have wanted and wanted and wanted the, the things that other people have wanted a child and can't have it. I've, I've seen all of these things. It's hard to say that God can do what is impossible, and I get it. I get it. I have prayed and prayed and prayed for miracles only to have to cry and say goodbye to loved ones. I've prayed and prayed and prayed for miracles only to cry with others who have lost a loved one. I have prayed and prayed and prayed for marriages to be fixed and reconciled with people who were hurting only to see those marriages fall apart. But I've also prayed for miracles 
And I have seen people who have gotten better when nobody said that they would. And I have prayed and I have prayed and I have prayed for miracles and I have prayed with people who said that their marriage, people were telling them your marriage is over, it's ruined, just don't worry about it anymore, just let it go. And I've seen those marriages be mended. You cannot tell me that God can't do what is impossible. You can't. And scripture speaks to that. Sarah and Abraham, what if they believed that things were just impossible? Genesis eighteen fourteen is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. And I said this when we were in Genesis, and I'll say it again. I can't help but wonder if in that time, and I heard R.C. Sproul say this, and I just thought it was right on the money. He said, I can't help but imagine when she found out she was pregnant, if Abraham didn't go outside and he started counting every single star, they'll be all numerous as his offspring. Many testify in Scripture to the fact that God can do whatever he sets his mind to, whatever he wants to do. He can do anything. In Job 42.2, Job has to learn the hard way. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 32, 17, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Jesus himself, in Matthew 19, 26, but Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Nothing is impossible with God. We have to stop living our lives believing that God can't do everything. The question is, And I mention this here. The question is, is it his will? Because not everything is in God's will. Not everything that you pray for is in God's will. And guess what? He's not going to answer everything just the way you want him to. Some things are outside of his will. Sometimes we pray and we pray and we pray for miracles and sometimes they don't happen. And sometimes they do. It's in God's will. It's in his plan. It's in his timing. And sin... It's in all of that. But it doesn't mean that he can't do the impossible. And then verse 38 says, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The angel came, said everything he needed to. Mary agrees and the angel departs. But let's look at Mary here for a second. You know, I think if this happened to us, we would respond differently. Maybe we would say something like, oh, I, I maybe just need some more information. Can you give me some more details about this? Maybe it's, well, I'm going to need time to think about this. Like, give me, give me a few months and I'll think about it, I'll, I'll pray on it, and then you can come back, and you know if this is what you still want to do, we can talk about it again. Some of us maybe would just say, eh, I don't know about this. That's not what we see here. Let, again, let's look at Mary. Nothing was really special about Mary from a social or economic standard. There's nothing about Mary that they would... She wasn't a queen. She wasn't royalty. She wasn't the most famous person. She didn't have all the money in the world. There's nothing about her socially or economically that would make her of any value to to bring the Son of God into the world. 
her and Joseph were poor. We can tell this by the offering that they bring in Luke 2.24 and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And how does this mean she's poor? Well, in Leviticus 12.8, the screen might say 18. I didn't catch the typo fast enough, but it's Leviticus 12.8. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And yet... This girl who, there was no, nothing about her socially, economically that would say, hey, she is the right person for this. She's found favor. You see, I think this is a great reminder that your situation in life or your place in life doesn't determine your worth in God's eyes. <laughs> it's not often the rich and powerful that God uses, is it? And I think in this verse, we see why God chooses her, her faith, her faith, her willingness to submit, to do what God wanted her to do. Her faith shines out here. And I want to mention right here to be very, very clear. I think that we need to look at Mary in the right perspective. She is not to be put on a pedestal and worshiped above Christ, which some are in the habit of doing. That's not her position, and it shouldn't be, and some have put her on that pedestal, and that's wrong. But I do think we need to look at her example here, and I think we need to give her some credit here because what she is being asked to do really is not easy at all. Let's think about this. If she's with child, she's yet to uh, consummate her marriage, and so People would have viewed her as an adulteress because she's with child. And because she's an adulteress, the possibility was there for her to be stoned. Leviticus 20.10, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress, so surely be put to death. And death at this time was to be stoned to death. If she's not killed, then there's a good chance that her husband seeing this would most likely leave her. And a matter of fact, it was not without, you know, the angel Gabriel intervening that she wasn't divorced. Matthew one nineteen, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And think about this. There would be social stigmas attached to her. Living in a small community would mean that people talk. We know this well, right? Living in a small community, we know that word gets passed around rather quickly. Single women at this time wouldn't have had opportunities for, job, or for jobs, wouldn't have had opportunities to live a good life. And really, she would lose everything with the possibility of losing her life. And knowing that all of these were a possibility, her response is, I am the Lord's servant. Let it happen to me as you have said. I'm the Lord's servant. The word servant here, its literal word is slave. I am the Lord's slave. I am obligated to do what it is that you have asked me to do. I'm submitting to what you want me to do. It is my obligation to do what you have asked me to do. And she knew all the risk. And yet she says, let it happen. Let it happen to me as you have said. I think she's following what is said in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
And so if we're going to look at Mary from the right perspective and look at her example in this story, I think there's some questions that kind of pop out to me. The main question is this, do we have the same faith? Do we have the same faith that Mary has here? And when I ask that, I mean, one, do we submit to God fully? Do we submit to God's design, his will, his plan fully? Do we have the same mindset as it says in Psalm 48? I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. I delight to do your will. I delight to do what it is you call me. And you know, these words here are prophesying a coming Messiah who wants to do the will of his father, who submits to his father. The question is, is it our desire to do his will? Do we desire to do what God has asked us to do? If God came before you and said, hey, I want you to do this, are you willing to do what it is he's asked you to do? Or do you get mad about it? Because I think we do that sometimes. We get mad, right? Because God, I'm okay with doing your will so long as your will and my will for myself line up. I'm okay with doing what you want me to do so much as if you're asking me to do the thing that I already want to do. If I don't want to do that, then we have an issue. What is it that causes this? Is it control? That we want to be in control of every aspect of our life? That we want to have control over every decision, everything that happens in our day-to-day life? Is it fear? Is it fear that, oh, man, I don't know what this is going to mean. I don't know what's going to happen to me if I do this. I don't know, God, where are you going to take me? What are you going to do with me? What's going to happen to me? What's gonna, what can happen to my family? What does this mean? Is it distrust? Do you just simply trust that God's not going to take care of you, provide for you, help you when he calls you? Is it security? No, oh, I want to stay in my comfort zone, my bubble, if you will. I think it's a little bit of all of these things. And here's the other question within this. Will we submit to God's will even when it could cost us everything? Because here's the truth. Following Jesus and doing what he asks you to do, it can cost you everything. It can cost you relationships with people. It can cause people to hate you because you stand for truth and for righteousness and they don't. They don't like you telling them what they should or shouldn't do. They, they don't want to hear that. It, it can cause people to, to look down on you. Don't forget, Jesus says, hey, the world hates me. They're going to hate you too. Are you willing to follow and do what God asks you to do even when you could lose everything? Or will you turn around and walk away and flee? Man, she could have lost everything. She could have lost her life. She could have lost her husband. She could have lost her opportunities to live a, a good life where she was. No jobs, no uh, all of these social stigmas that were on her. And yet... It leads me to the next question. Do we trust God in the unknown? In her faith, she was willing to be submissive and obedient, and she trusted that God would take care of her. She trusted that God would provide. Let it be, let this happen. I take this because if somebody is to say, let everything happen as you, you tell me it's going to happen, there has to be some semblance of trust there to say that, God, I know that you are going to take care of me because you're asking me to do this. 
And you see, I don't think, you know, I know the song, Mary, did you know? Did you know this? Did you know this? No, I don't, I don't think Mary fully understood everything. I think she understood that what was happening here was supernatural. I think she could understand that this child was going to be important. I don't think she understood fully how important. I don't think she understood everything that was going to go along with this. And yet she trusted. And imagine later on the pain and agony watching your son die. She trusted. In this moment, you see her trust. And you know, I think it's easy sometimes to trust God when things are going according to our plan. When we know that everything is going according to plan, when life seems great, when things are going well, when things are good, it's easy to say, you know what, God, I trust you. But as soon as life gets tough or things start to become unknown or I don't know what the future is going to hold and I don't know what this whole thing is going to look like. I don't know the significance of this. I don't know the bigness of it. I don't know what's going to happen to me here or there. I don't know. That's when we start to lack trust. Are we going to trust him in the unknown? Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 reminds us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, because my understanding is not God's understanding. I don't understand things the way God does. And in situations, I don't understand what this means when God knows what this means. So I need to trust him and know that when my understanding is confused or lacking, I know that he knows and his understanding is better than mine, and I just need to trust him. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. It's important to remember in times of the unknown that we are not alone, that God is with us, that he is there. He is strengthening us. He is with us. He is helping us. He is upholding us with his righteous right hand. We are not alone in the unknown. He is there. Psalm 62.8, trust in him at all times. Oh, people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. In all times, in all situations, in all matters, trust him. And pour out your heart before him because he is a refuge. When I am in the unknown, the best thing that I can do, the best thing that you can do is turn to him. He is our refuge in times of trouble, in times of good, in times of unknown. You see, I think Mary here had a true faith. I think she trusted God and she was obedient. She was willing to submit, knowing that God had a plan. And God had a plan. Do we have that kind of faith? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and as they do, maybe the thing is this morning, as they're coming up, maybe your faith has been misplaced. And you think of the faith that Mary has and you're thinking, I don't have that kind of faith and maybe the situation is your faith is misplaced. Your faith is in other things besides God. We put our faith in a lot of things when we're unsure about life or when things don't look like they're going well or we don't know what to do. We place our things in other things. We place our faith in people over God. We place our faith in all sorts of things. Stuff, people, books, therapy, all that stuff. We place our faith in all of these things over God. 
And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe your faith is misplaced. And you know, you can change that. You can put your faith in the one true God. The one true God, the most high. The one who sent his son to die for us so that we can be reconciled to him. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're looking at your life and you're saying, man, I, my faith has been lacking. My faith has been lacking. I've not been obedient. I know that, that God is calling me to do something. God is calling me to move. God is calling me to act. I'm supposed to be doing something and yet I'm not because I want control or I'm afraid or I want security or I want whatever. You've spent more time following your will over God's. You've lacked trust in him. God, things aren't happening the way that I wanted them to, that I expected them to, that I, that I think they should. And God, I just don't know what to do. And I, I'm, I'm lacking trust in you because I, I feel like things should be going this way and they're not. And if that's you, maybe this is something that you need to go before God and you need to talk to him about it this morning. You can do that right where you're sitting. You can come up in here. I'd love to pray with you. And if you need to talk about, you know, I want to follow him. I want to, I want to serve him. I want to live for him. I'd love to talk with you about that as well. Man, he has brought his son into this world, the son of the most high, the carbon copy with all of his characteristics, all of his qualities. He came, he lived, he died. He taught us what it means to sacrifice, what it means to be submissive. And we've learned the same thing from Mary, to submit to God's will, to submit to his design, his plan. Are we willing to do that? If you're here this morning and you have not been living that way, and you just need to talk, I pray that you will do so as we stand together and we sing.